Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, hosting solo this week as Jeremy Goldcorn is off on antipodean adventures. So the third plenary session of the 18th Party Congress is over, and the decision on some major issues and comprehensively deepening reform, I said that without a trace of irony and tongue not anywhere near my cheek, has been now out for a week. Uh, China watchers from all different disciplines have had a chance to read and digest its content, sifting through lots of turgid, turgid party speak and boilerplate, but finding, I think, to the delight of some, the surprise of many, and I suppose the consternation of a few, that there's some substance to economic reforms this time around, but the... Um, but the decision also contains, and this, to the surprise of basically no one, uh, contains very little by way of substantive political reform. Indeed, there is much that can be read unambiguously as retrenchment. So part of that retrenchment will be a tightening up on media. And so in addition to the decision from the Third Plenum, one of the topics I also want to address today is the Bloomberg affair, that is, the allegations in a piece first by the New York Times correspondent and frequent Seneca guest, I should add, Ed Wong, that uh, Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, Matthew Winkler, spiked a story that its Hong Kong-based projects and investigations reporters were working on about China's richest man, Dalian Wanda chairman Wang Jianlin, and his ties to the upper echelons of the, of the leadership. So Winkler, uh, Ed's Bloomberg sources alleged, feared that uh, Bloomberg, which is already, I should note, blocked in China, would be shown the door, and it ordered its reporters to dial down aggressive reporting on China in a phone call with staff. Uh, and Winkler has defended his decision, or, or supposedly in, in this phone call, uh, with an analogy to Nazi Germany that surely has not endeared his organization to the Chinese leadership. Um, and then it fired an alleged leaker who uh, is a friend of, of several of the guests here today, Michael Forsyth. So that and more on Seneca this week. I am absolutely delighted to have with me today James Fallows, national correspondent for The Atlantic and author most recently of China Airborne. Jim and his wife Deborah lived in China, as many of you listeners know, for a long stretch last decade. He's traveling with the U.S.-China Education Trust in Washington on this visit. Jim, glad you could make time to join us. Finally, I am going to be asking you to give some insights on how all this stuff looks from D.C. Um, Wilco, because I don't know anything about how it looks from China. <laughs> good, good. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome back Bill Bishop, who moved to heaven and earth. Actually, I think you just rearranged a dinner, right, uh, to be here with us. Actually, <laughs> actually I had to Similar to rearrange. rush study for my second grader's English test tomorrow. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I've got uh, Heavy pressure before 6.30. Oh, right, right. I've got one of those, too. Um, anyway, Bill, as we all know, has been called the China Watcher's China Watcher, and his Sinicism newsletter is in its final days, we lament, uh, as a daily anyway. It's going to be going now to a weekly format. Anyway, great to see you, Bill. Thanks and for having me. Good luck to Kieran and or Ariel on their test tomorrow. And then uh, third and, and by no means last uh, rounding out our roster is none other than Gotti Epstein, whose voice you just heard, uh, correspondent for The Economist, a man long overdue for a return to Seneca. Great to have you back on the show, Gotti. Great to be back. So um, before we plunge into the meat of today's chat, I wanted to get everyone's read on Ambassador Gary Locke's resignation announcement earlier uh, this week, actually. So uh, I take it it caught nobody by surprise. Everyone had heard That's right. the rumblings that he was, he was leading. Uh, so I guess the next question is, why? Um, do we take on face value, or do we think that it was fear of black lung disease? Or <laughs> <laughs> I, I take it face value that, that his family, his children and wife were back in Seattle. I think he was missing them, and he felt as if he had done what he came here to do. So I, I have, often I'm cynical as a journalist, not on this one. Okay. Gotti, you got to take on this? Well, then the only thing you could be potentially cynical about is he said that pollution had nothing to do with it, whereas, you know, you might have your kids in Seattle partly for that reason. <laughs> 
conclusion. Right. I got nothing. But I, 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 I will many, say, uh, many, many expat families. Our kids, who, our kids are younger; they're only in second grade. But um, certainly, as we look at our current and future tenure in Beijing, the sort of educational choices narrow significantly as your children get older. And I think they, his children specifically, had a great opportunity to attend the best private school in Seattle. So right. again, I take it at face value. I think value. that's the primary reason. I, I also I think agree. it's interesting, and in, in, you know, President Obama has not quite three years left on his term. He has about 28 or 30 months or so. And so if Ambassador Locke were to stay another year or so, then he would have a hard potentially to find a good person to come in for 15 or 18 months. And now this gives an opportunity for somebody to come in who maybe is very qualified and gets slotted in and has a significant role into the remainder remainder of Obama's And that segues very nicely into my next question, which is to all of you. uh, (laughs) who, Who replaces him? Who do you think will be tapped to replace him? Any guesses, Gotti? Well, usually the, the list of people of names uh, that comes up every time uh, are people like, uh, you know, Susan Shurek or Shirk. Hank Paulson or John Thornton, John, John Thornton, Thornton. Um, Jeff Bader. And it never is one of these people that we've heard of. It's someone else. I mean, we were surprised by, I think, a little bit by Gary Locke's uh, right. selection and by John Huntsman's. So I would bet that we're not really using the right calculus right. to figure out. Uh, I think a lot of these, these embassies, you can sort of, the small European countries, it's going to be some kind of donor who's there. Sure. There's about 16 different Venn diagrams would overlap who would be good for China. It could be another Asian American. It could be a scholar. It could be a career person. It could be some uh, Huntsman or Paulson type across the uh, aisle the appointment. Aisle. So yeah, it could be anybody. Bill, do you have any favorite picks? Uh, rumors that, you know, who might be on the short list, but no clue. So okay. no need to speculate. All right. All right. Let's, let's move on then. That, uh, um, I'm, look forward, I'm looking forward to meeting Mike Forsythe's available. Yeah, he I – As is Paul <laughs> – I would, I would pick Paul <laughs> Henley, young yeah. but qualified. And, 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 and I'll cross the aisle also. And yes, Huntsman across the still, aisle. I think Huntsman is bowing out of the 2016 race, so he could come back. He could come right. back. <laughs> He's already the Manchurian candidate. Given yeah. his uh, his wallfooting <laughs> appearance, I don't think China would give him a visa. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's let's move on to to the main topic for today, which of course is the third plenum. I'm going to ask Jim. Uh, I know that you you uh, haven't been here watching it up close, but you, uh, as, as I have, I'm sure you've been reading a lot of the interpretations by the, the smart seasoned China watchers, and uh, these are folks you know who know how to read between the lines. And I think you would maybe agree that there's a surprising consensus that has emerged from this, wouldn't you say? I mean, I guess it's it's kind of funny because not long ago on the show, I plugged a piece that you had written on the blog uh, very, very great recently. Piece. It was a yeah, great piece about just you know how we how radically disparate all the views are on, on, on China. We talked to especially economists or something. Um, but it seems now that there's, there's you know, most are in agreement, and that consensus would be something along the lines of Xi Jinping is kind of doubling down on Dengism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I was impressed. I, I got here just uh, a little less than a week ago, and in the first stage of the general announcements from the plenum, I thought there was a lot of the informed commentary was, what the hell, this is not going anyplace. But I'm struck that most people are saying that at least in terms of intentions, there's a lot of an announced intention here on the economic front. And so now the, the hard part begins. But the intentions are one thing, and the maybe we can take some silver lining in the political squeeze if that is part of the deal of, of what uh, Xi Jinping needs to get any of this stuff done. Sure. Gotti, did you have any different read on that? I mean, you, you No, I generally agree. I think you know, don't, the disappointment on the economic side was uh, they appeared to have also doubled down on, on SOEs being uh, having a large role in the economy. Mm-hmm. And that uh, is, I think, a big disappointment and can, could have a big impact on whether the rest of the economic reforms really uh, really take. Well, everything kind of took um, the form of, like, you know, first here's, you know, our, 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 our sop to the, the political left here, and then here's what we're really going to do. Didn't it seem like that to you? 
Um, a little bit. I mean, I think what what I'm concerned. I mean, I, I have no doubt that they actually want to implement a bunch of the economic reforms that they actually put out in this document. Uh, and I think what was what's interesting about that is what happens when they face some dislocation because of implementing these reforms. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think there's the political tightening. It's not just for within the party. Um, I think the the stuff about the media, about uh, controlling the internet even more tightly and cracking down even more on internet crime, as they put it. Uh, is all about uh, the party maintaining the commanding heights sure. uh, of the system, and that apparently that extends to uh, the state-owned sector too. And I think, I think that's going to be a real problem where, when the, the economic reforms conflict with SOE reform, with the lack of SOE reform, uh, I think that's going to be uh, going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Bill, specifically for you, um, the 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 Gung Bao and the Jieding were very very different documents. The the communique and and. Uh, the decision, uh, which came out uh, a few days later, what accounted for that? I mean, I, I heard some speculation uh, about why they might have gotten it out earlier than normal. What, what, do you have an opinion on that, Bill? Uh, I think that the, the the what I've heard is just that there was uh, they were concerned by the negative reaction, not so much in sort of the foreign media or pundit class, but on Weibo and and in sort of certain Chinese circles, and so they rushed it. It was originally scheduled to come out on the 20th, which was yesterday, Mm -hmm. and they put it out on Friday. Um, I think that the uh, this is the first third plenum in the Internet era. This is the first third plenum where China's economy is so important in global markets. And so I think that you had a lot of people who were paying much more attention to it than in past and who didn't really have any particular knowledge or experience in trying to understand how the party releases these documents. And so for the folks who've been looking at this for a long time, there really wasn't much surprise that, okay, the communique is one thing, but the meat, the real stuff is in the full report. Right. And to your comment earlier, one of the things is there still has, has yet to you're, be a... You're being Gotti just Gotti's point, sorry. <laughs> there's yet to be a, a, a I think, a, there's an okay, decent translation in English online, but there's yet to be a, like a terrific English translation online. I'm not even sure that the government's going to release that. Um, I the Chinese actually I find to be very amb- ambiguous, and you could certainly, if you want to take a positive spin, you can say there's a lot of ambition in the ambiguity, and even around SOE reform, I actually think we're going to see a lot more SO- SOE reform than people expect. And then the other thing is that wouldn't be hard. <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, I think I think the way it's written and some of the other things you know, there there are other pieces that go after the SOEs. I think you're going to end up with a very much smaller core of what do they call strategic central SOEs, and there's going to be a lot less activity among the sort of marginal, uh, smaller central SOEs or provincial local they SOEs. They didn't tell SOEs to get out of non-strategic sectors. Um, they didn't say they didn't either. So there, right. again, I think we, you can't. You got to be careful about reading too much specificity in these documents. They didn't not say it. Right. I would actually right. agree that the intent is pro- is to actually uh, shrink their influence. They just they haven't put out as they they have put out intentions on on many other uh, elements of the economy in terms of. You know, having more competition in the market, having a decisive role—that uh, language isn't really there in the SOE. Um, well, but the decisive, the market's decisive role in allocating resources is sort of one of the overarching themes of the document, and so there is a contradiction between that and the SOEs. They've, they've, and, I mean, there, there's been sort of escalation in the language that they've used uh, from from party congress to party congress to talk about the role of of the right. market. No, th- this is a much bigger role now for the decisive market. Decisive has not been used. I think. Before. I think you're right. I think there's a battle that's coming. Um, and w- so uh, clearly they haven't 
I mean, I think Jim wants to jump in. Yeah. So. Oh, I have a special bleeding reform point to make, which is I gather today or last night they released, um, they're going to liberalize some of the airspace for, for yes. ah, right. small so planes, yes. Right, right, right. Which, which you may be flying is, in here again yeah, with or without a visa. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's significant to me as I thought that was one of the frontiers in the battle between the security state and the commercial state, that, that there's a gigantic pent-up demand for air travel in this country that, that the military is the main thing in the way of. So I'll take this as a straw in the wind, so to speak. Okay. And, and I thought of you, Jim, when I took two flights, uh, Beijing to Shanghai and Shanghai back uh, a couple weeks ago. Both left on time and landed early. Unheard wow. of on the Beijing-Shanghai wow. corridor. And, and Kaiser, one more point, just because we've been talking about the economic side. I mean, this, this document is a lot more than about economic reform. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about some of the other things okay. that the media has focused on. Uh, obviously, things like the, uh, the reform of the one-child policy, you know, allowing couples where one child, uh, one, one of the members of the couple is a single child to have a second uh, but you know that's that's not a huge surprise to anyone. Um, abolition of the Lao Tiao system, no, not the Lao Gai system, but um, uh, that actually has been mooted before, and of course, and it's no again not a huge surprise to anyone. Um, there have been hints at, but nothing solid on co reform. Uh, right, it's pretty ambiguous. Raising the dividends, we talked about that SOEs have to pay thirty percent. Um, also, let's talk about a national security council committee. Uh, committee, 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 right? Xie Hui, is it? Or State Security Committee, depending on Well, that translation got quickly changed. The initial official Xinhua translation was State Security Committee, which they, again, they listen. People on Weibo, and they immediately said, oh, like the KGB, like the USSR. And within a couple of days, they had changed the official Xinhua translation to National Security Committee. So what would you say among these things possibly has been overhyped or played up too much? Or uh, what do you think the media has sort of missed in its focus? You being the media, Gotti, we'll start with you. Um, what have we missed? What have um, you, no, no, I mean, I, I'm what talking about you your, your, your chance to, to go after the other guys. What, what has The Economist gotten that nobody else has? <laughs> <laughs> well, tomorrow's, I, I actually, uh, uh, Bill practically read the first paragraph of our story tomorrow um, about, they, they never, the, the party was surprised at how interested the world is in their document. And I think they had to, uh, they, that's why they had to speed up the, I mean, and also the Chinese people and, yeah. um, and, and Weibo. I mean, it's a whole different world than five years ago. It was an otherwise uh, slow news week, you see. Um, so they had to move up the, um, the release of the document. Uh, I, I would say, uh, I, I'm not so sure that we've really missed much. I mean, there's so, there's so much that's uh, unknown still. Uh, you know, there was also all this vague language, not just about SOEs, but also about judicial reform. Um, and it doesn't—it doesn't look good on to me on judicial reform. But I think we have to wait and see. Um, but of course, the party is going to still be in control of of important decisions that the courts make. So I don't have a very optimistic uh, take on how that's going to how rule of law is going to is going to develop over the next decade. And that is something that people don't talk about much. But it also isn't a surprise. So I you know wouldn't see it necessarily in mm-hmm. um, in the media. So. Um, and so the question I have, I'm going to use an analogy. I've lived in Japan for a while, and every couple of years there was a big reform proposal in Japan, and nothing ever happened. Is the air of expectation around the reform being announced now, is it different from 10 years ago? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there's a lot of cynicism that stuff can actually get implemented. Right. But I think that that excitement has been captured, and the yeah. fact that there is cynicism has also been captured. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's... that's the, uh, what about... The, I mean, has it been... Or exuberant. I mean, I, I think I would use Bill. You use the word effusive. Well, I, it was schizophrenic. You know, Tuesday the the communique comes out, and oh my God, it's terrible. The markets go down. This is nothing. It's a you know big. I call it a nothing dumpling. You can call it whatever you want. Right. And then two days later, this thing comes out. The rumors come out. 
the uh, version apparently hits Weibo and WeChat on Friday, and rumors are out. And oh, this is great! You know, the sell side investment banks all say this is the best reform ever, and this is great. Market goes up Friday, it goes up Monday. You know, how about a little bit of sort of kind Actually, of yeah, uh, even keel yeah. moderation, which is it's definitely positive, but this is the easy part. Really? Actually, getting this stuff implemented is is orders of magnitude more difficult than putting in a document. One element, just, of, one element of skepticism that maybe isn't enough in the media, I think, but is be care- maybe there's a be careful what you wish for element here. Like if they actually do get all this stuff done, uh, if they actually do implement um, these reforms and, and let the market be decisive, uh, there could be such economic dislocation that um, the political tightening will be even worse next year. We'll, have an, we'll see an ugly, or in the next few years, uh, and that we'll see an uglier side of China also on foreign policy potentially. Uh, you could see... You could see a ripple effects if they if they actually put through uh, tough economic reforms. And, and can I just follow what Gotti is saying? Of because course. by definition, some economic reform and liberalization is going to dislocate people. It's going to dislocate people at the top. You know, some of the big SOEs and dislocate some people on the bottom. So, is there reason to think that the uh, the administration will stand by that, even as as the kind of disruptions you're describing happen? Well, I think this is why we haven't seen the language on SOEs um, that maybe some people were hoping for. But we saw several arrests since the plenum. Or of, of SOE executives. Right. So right. I think, but I, do you still think, I mean, anti-corruption is about uh, institutional I think anti-corruption uh, is part of an it's, entire it's package. Power, right? I, I think these are not individual, you know, I don't right. think the corruption crackdown or austerity I don't, or mass line, I don't think these are discrete, unrelated packages. I but think it's, it's all it's part of a much broader strategy to change. To make China into Singapore. So a that's, lot of discussion, speaking of Singapore, I mean, a stated a, goal. Right. A, a lot of discussion yeah. has, has been around uh, what the decision reflects about uh, Xi's actual uh, power right now to the extent that he's, he's consolidated or concentrated power in his hands. You've heard in, in many quarters um, people talking about this is a greater concentration of power in an individual ever since Deng. Some people even said since Mao. Uh, what what I mean, But of course, we've also read in, in some quarters uh, people who've challenged that now conventional wisdom. Um, you know, are are we uh, again? Are we overestimating this? Is it possible that we we have we're reading this wrong, and that maybe Russell Lee Moses was more right? <laughs> well, I, I think you have to look at what you know. One of the most important questions is wh- what is she's control of the military, and do we think that he has consolidated power of the military? Well, and, I mean, and, he, and if if he has that, and now he's created the state security or this national security commission, and he's going to be running that then those are, the, frankly, the more important power bases. Right. There's no reason to think that his, his grasp on, on the military is any weaker. I mean, he, he was handed CMC. I, I, think, I think it's very important. I think it was a bit overlooked. But the day after Boy Xilai's trial ended, Xi Jinping shows up in Dalian and takes a nice stroll right. down the new aircraft carrier. That's right. I don't think there was any coincidence with the message he was trying to send. And I think people who are paying attention in China understood that message. I think it's hard to argue that. Uh, she is right. uh, not more powerful than Hu Jintao. I mean, and, oh, yeah, and, and then the next powerful. step, but the next so step. What is, so what are you comparing him to? To Zhang. I mean, right. I mean yeah. more powerful well, than Zhang? I mean, Zhang, was, well, Zhang had uh, 13 years to consolidate power. So. Yeah, and the next Zhang step, the, I think. Zhang at the end, I think you would have to stay as more powerful than she at this point. At this point. Well, he's only a year well, in. Zhang's still around. Right. Zhang's not irrelevant. Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there are rumors that, Part of this, one of the things the document talks about is reform in national defense and, and the military. And there are rumors that there's going to be a, a restructuring of how they do the military commands. And, you know, if that happens, if she's able to reshuffle a bunch of generals and bring in new generals, 
then those are his guys. So that's going to even further cement his his control of the military. So I think we are at a situation where potentially he's going to be the most power. Like you were saying, he could, could very well be the most powerful leader. It does not look like Li Keqiang sort of some skept, some speculation aside, it does not look like he is um, a particularly powerful premier at this point. No. Yeah. So to ask a reductionist question, is it good or bad for the world as a whole that, that she is strong? Let's talk about that in just one second. I do want to ask one more because that was my very next question uh, after this. So I, I do want to um, ask what it means that he is he's explicitly claimed authorship, uh, saying you know that he was the head of the writing group, that Xi Jinping, does, what's the symbol of, of that? I mean, does it, does it, I'm putting my imprimatur on This is his prestige. This is it. If this, if this doesn't happen, then he, right. he's... A, from a politician's perspective, you know, you're basically well, you're putting all your chips on the table. No, I mean, he's saying like those eggs become an omelet, right? It's also and, a signal and, within right. the party. It's like you have to pay attention. Yeah, to no, this is from the top, and you 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 defy this I or ignore this. More from the party for anybody right. else. Yeah, and that's this why this leading group leadership you can't play factions off of each right. other. It's all about me. And that's why the leading group being part of you know, reporting to Party Central, the reform small leading small group, is very important. Yeah, there's a disturbing amount of of. Con- of, of, of agreement consensus here. Consensus what would Jeremy room. say? I don't, I don't know. So, but, but we'll well, get he'd, to use a, he'd use the word <laughs> at some point. Right. We haven't used that yet. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, for one podcast where it wasn't I used. Was, I was really hoping for one profanity-free podcast. Uh, anyway. Sorry. Um, oh, it's on iTunes. But, but, uh, to, to, to Jim's point, I mean, Bill, both of us actually went on record, uh, if Twitter counts as going on record, saying that the collective nature of leadership during the Who and When administration was a feature and not, not a bug. bug. Uh, now, I mean, are we going? Uh, do we do we get to have it both ways? It didn't work. It didn't work, right? right. I mean, I think what you're seeing a lot of this is so this, we, is, this we, is without explicitly saying it, they have repudiated its large aspects of the previous ten years of rule here. That's that's significant. They really have. It has yeah. been a, a, a wholesale. It, it, it became clear that collective leadership was just another word for brokering different special interests and factions, um, allowing them to really bubble up and, and yeah. And, so. Again, consensus. Oh, God. <laughs> and consensus and the guy from overseas who's just listening. <laughs> uh, sounds sensible to me. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the view from the U.S. view is, is there's a lot of hope pinned on the idea there's a strong enough center here to actually do something. Gotti, do we have any measure of the extent or the magnitude of opposition to some of the key points in the plenary decision? I mean, is, is you know, this is the strongest statement to date about letting market play a decisive role. I mean, does is, do we can we sort of read into this that they had to steamroll anybody in any significant way to get this through? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't think we, we know the details. Of course they had to steamroll um, different uh, interests, and especially... CNPC. <laughs> they've they've they shown already, that they were in the anti-corruption campaign. Uh, I think uh, we're going to see in the coming days the reactions of different factions. I, I'm interested to see what the leftists uh, have to say about all this, and we haven't heard... Maybe there's been a, a bit on Weibo, but I, I don't think we've heard. That, that's where the media controls come uh, in. <laughs> we haven't heard their voices very loudly yet, but I bet you we will. If they're smart, they won't be too loud yet. Okay. Right. Um, before I guess I've, uh, any anyone have any more points from from the, the plenary? The one, the one point I think that was do? missed. You know, a lot of media focus on the one child uh, tweaking and then the um, sort of huko potential huko reform. Uh, there's actually something in, in that's very interesting about education, about how they're talking about changing the, the Gaokao system. Because right. right now, it's very, very discriminatory. So if you live in Beijing, it's yeah. much easier to go to a good university because you actually need lower scores. And they talk about sort of having a kind of a consistent standardized level across the country. You want to talk about special interests. 
there are lots of parents in major cities who are going to absolutely be aghast really at that concept. At that right. Yeah, gonna... right? And so, so when you talk about there's isn't just interest in the party. There are all sorts of interests in society. Who are, some are going to benefit, doesn't... some are going to lose. And so it's going to be a really interesting and very difficult battle how they're going to balance these interests. But to your point earlier about special interests, there are also lots of opportunities here for new interests and new groups right. to make lots of money and get much more power with these reforms. Well, that's what So the, it's not just this, this sort of cohesive elite block that's against reforms. There's going to be there's a lot of sort of dividing and conquering and there's going to be a lot of money made out of this stuff. I have a question again a somewhat I'm not cynical but skeptical question that that around the world announcing intentions is always the easy part. And certainly it's mm-hmm. more significant here where the government has more power than a lot of other countries, but but isn't this something we'll see like 5 years from now whether the, whether yes. we look back on this as uh, too rosy? Yeah, yes. I mean ex- yeah. except exactly. in, in my experience yeah. I've seen when they've put this much behind a statement uh, a, cl- a claim like that they are they're usually ready to follow through with something. I mean, right. that's been my experience. But you're yeah, I mean you're a really hardened cynic Kaiser. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> no, but one example, just one, 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 one small example that was in the news today was this: the uh, Premier League had the State Council meeting. He announced that they were going to set up this unified property registration database, and it was going to be managed under the Ministry of Land. They've been trying to put this together for years, and there was a deadline that was set for June 30th this year, and the localities ignored it because nobody wants to have property records in a searchable electronic database. Right. Because it's effectively asset disclosure, right. but this is this is one of the keys, the key moves that has to happen before they can roll out a property tax, which is one of the key things that has to happen or should happen before they can start really addressing the kind of center of fiscal relations that have that, that tie into local debt issues and all the other problems. So there there are so many points that they have to untangle, and at each point. Corruption is near resistance. or at the core of all the problems. Oh, and they have to attach names to those properties. Suddenly, a lot of people with ID cards in Gansu and Anhui. Oh, it's a huge be, issue. It's not a taxes for it, apartments it, they never knew they had. Right, and uh, then and then you have then you have the minister, the former minister of finance, at this Taijing forum yesterday, saying, "I'm against the property tax unless I get f- true property rights." Because right now, when you buy a property, you get seven years. So here, you have you know a senior retired official saying, "You know, you, I wouldn't pay the property tax unless I own the property outright." So you got a whole bunch of other issues that, that, well, I mean, that have to get on, resolved. Yeah, that's 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 not off off the table either, right? Talking about you know was it in the document owning, owning things off yeah. outright? Well, they talk yeah. about property, you know. Anyway, right. I, I do I do want I would be really remiss. I mean, I can talk to you guys anytime, but Jim is in town, <laughs> yes, and so yes, I, I, really, yeah. I said at the top of the show, I'm really curious to hear about uh, the view from DC. I've got a, kind of a broader philosophical question, uh, and let me set this up a, a bit, uh, and, and excuse me for for going on long. Um, Maintaining tight party control while giving primacy to market forces and um, the allocation of resources, these are the fundaments of Dungist neo-authoritarianism, and they haven't changed at all, as I suggested. Xi Jinping has really doubled down on this. So 20 years ago, I doubt many people uh, would have thought that capitalism without democracy was going to last and that we'd find you know, GDP growth you know, sustained across this 20 years uh, and we'd be worrying ourselves over it falling to 7.5%. Uh, wasn't it supposed to have evolved or collapsed by now? Um, I mean, or- Orville Schell, whose take on this is one I always value, uh, he talked recently about this, uh, this implicit teleology in the American view of history about how, uh, you know, whenever Bill Clinton talks about China being behind the curve, you know, what's implied is that we know sort of what the curve is supposed to look like, Francis Fukuyama and the history and last man, all that stuff. But, um, you know, 
Is your sense that with the U.S. economy still kind of limping, uh, with the unemployment rate still staying well above 7%, partisan gridlock and this recent government shutdown, um, is this whiff of declinism is still kind of hanging in the air? Uh, is the American view evolving or changing on this issue? It's got to confront it again, right? Sure. Once again. And I think there's always been a very simple, there have been a couple of very simplistic views about China. One is the, as they get richer, they'll have to become more democratic. That's always been wrong. It's always been too, too bold. There's the, they just have to collapse any minute now. They're about, about to f- fall apart. And I think that anybody who has paid even as much attention as the limited amount I have over the years, you, you recognize this is just different from anything we've seen before. And it's going to be a combination of areas of progress and areas where there, there are tensions. Part of the argument that, that I've, I've um, was making when I lived here is that you can see this system going on for a very long time, whatever combination of, of capitalism and partial liberalization they have. I do increasingly wonder whether China can become sort of a really first-tier economic nation with the political controls that are on here. Not that people are going to revolt, but are our universities really, are people are going to attract the best talent from around the world if you can't use the internet, if you have the pollution and things like that, which is different from saying, oh, they're going to become uh, democratic automatically. I think the other point about your question on the U.S., the sad reality of the U.S. is that it's so preoccupied now with its own chaos and its own squalor. People aren't paying that much attention. They have a somewhat benign view of, I think, of the Xi Jinping era itself. Okay, so you you do see a, a little shift in the wind. I mean, part of it just because they're they're so focused on on, on, on domestic crises. That yeah, I think had. something that is actually remarkable in the span of political history I've seen is that compared, say, with the Japan tensions of 25 years ago or other national frictions the U.S. has had, there's a relatively low level of anti-Chinese concern in the U.S., which is actually remarkable if you think about how big the these two countries are and, and how China has, has, has risen. And so, interestingly, the main politicians that have run on a Be Afraid of China campaign, they've all been, they've all lost. Yeah. So it, it's even including Mitt Romney. Right, including recently. Mitt Romney, who's going to declare Do a lots of things on the first day, right? He was going to fix the whole yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah. It, it was well, so great. I mean, everybody, including him, knew that he didn't mean it. And there was some wonderful picture of him in a in a Quiznos a couple of days ago, just eating a sandwich by himself. Oh, 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 <laughs> oh I, I wonder where Hu Jintao is with a Quiznos, too. Can I just one one point to, to, to Jim's point about— Of course, of course. Well, I think back to the the the—, the, the plenum decision, this discussion around, you know, the market playing a decisive role, you know, the market doesn't work without rule of law. And so in some ways, by putting this in a document, there, there, I think there is some implicit recognition that there has to be better rule of law. And I think rule of law, you can look at on a spectrum from none to perfect, right? It's not a binary thing. Sure. So I think you're going to see some progress towards the rule of law in certain areas, because otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Well, you've got the mic, Billy. You, you pointed, uh, and you often talk about Jim Mann's book, uh, The China Fantasy. Uh, you quoted from it once again when you o- opened your newsletter with it the other day, talking about how China may defy the American expectation, just to keep on uh, what I was talking to, to, to Jim about here. Um, would you say that the American view should be evolving? Uh, I think it, I think if people are paying attention, it has evolved, yeah, which I think really there's, there, there is no longer, as, as Jim was saying, this sort of very simplistic view that, oh, engagement means democracy and freedom. But I think it's it's very difficult now in D.C. to figure out, well, what do you do? Because there are lots of positives in the relationship. There are lots of challenges in the relationship. There are lots of things that we need to do together. There are lots of things we're in sort of have contradictory or uh, contradictory or in some, some I don't want to say hostile, but certainly um, difficult 
uh, positions between the two countries. And so it's a very, very difficult time. One of one of your points about sort of American chaos is this is actually a time when, when America needs needs very <laughs> squalor, sorry, needs needs some very, very smart, sophisticated foreign policy thinkers. And I gotta tell you, from sitting here in Beijing, it's hard to see where they are in DC. Sitting here in Beijing, we also don't see what the narratives are. With a couple of exceptions. American, Sorry, don't even take offense. Sure. A couple of exceptions. In, in, in the American media narrative on China, uh, as we were strolling over here tonight, Jim, you we were talking about um, there are basically two now, uh, press censorship and pollution. Uh, these are, you think these are the two dominant narratives? Yeah, and I think that, that there's an actual, there's an interesting historical timeline question here that, that as you all are here in China, you know, you ask people and they look back 10 years, they're much better off. 30 years, they're unrecognizably better off. I think in the U.S. media narrative of China, the question is, if you think that over time, over a period of, say, three or four years, things are not somewhat liberalizing in civil society and rule of law and all that, or, or, or pollution, then that, that raises some problems. And I guess the last six months, there's been very little discussion of big strategic challenge. Is there going to be you no know, war between the U.S. and China? That, that sort of thing doesn't come up. But pollution you know, has been more and more in the headline and the recent media squeeze, as th- those two things are. I think those are the real – China spends all this money on soft power, but those are the two things that are sort of hurting its image at the highest level. Does the crackdown uh, domestically on the Internet also play into what you're talking about in terms of paying attention to the media squeeze? Uh, yeah, I, I think there is a sense. I mean, interestingly, the only people, the people who are most concerned about China right now in the U.S. are not laid off factory workers, but sort of the intelligentsia who think, what about this Internet squeeze? What about my visas? <laughs> Speaking personally. Or why can't I afford a house in Palo Alto anymore? Or yes, right. <laughs> so it's no longer Tank up. Man, really. I mean, just sort of Tank Man uh, is, isn't, isn't the... the, the I guess, no, I think I would say the iconic image of China right now is not Tank Man or Foxconn or a farmer. It's the sky you can't see through in Beijing. Right, it's that guy with the... And, you know, ironically, or or maybe that's the wrong word, but that's actually those, you know, the internet piece and pollution are actually among the top concerns of sort of the urban middle class in China, too. Which yeah. I think is, is, is healthy. And I think the government here recognizes that. Absolutely. Consensus. What, abs- absolutely. Consensus. <laughs> okay, so um, one last thing for Jim before we move on to the Bloomberg affair. Um, talk a little bit about the state of the um, what was once called the pivot, the rebalancing. Um, we don't hear a lot about it anymore. We don't because I think it was never about Asia. It was all about Iraq and Afghanistan and and Iran and the Middle East in general. It was a way for Obama to say, let's get the hell out of this sinkhole where we've been for the last dozen years. And he has, for all of his other problems, he has wound up the Iraq war and is winding up the U.S. part of the Afghanistan war, not the war itself, but but having American presence there. So I think that's the only thing it ever meant in the United States. Ah, interesting. I mean, what I hear now uniformly from everyone who talks about it is a terrible branding job. You know, if we wanted, we were already, we were always a Pacific power. We never, we're not a Pacific power. Uh, why talk about it at all? Why, you know, uh, you know. Uh, it's almost as if it were a Chinese foreign ministry exactly, clumsiness right. of, of statement. It, so it, I think it was. Ham-fisted. Yeah. Yes. And so, and they were going to put what, another couple hundred people in Darwin. It was yeah. never some big uh, yeah. redeployment. Well, so if you think of it as being mainly about getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan, then suddenly it makes sense. Okay. So Gani, you've taken notes here. Now you know what stories are going to sell in America. So just more pollution stories. But he's more British. Pollution. It's a British It's a British. Oh, right, newspaper. right, right. Well, but I mean, I think your I leadership think is still pollution, primarily American. Baby milk. Uh, Still, pandas still sell. Pandas still sell. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah. cool. Poisoned pandas. <laughs> just, just to, to the a pivot with a mask. To, that would, yeah. to, yeah. to the pivot point today. The, the, the was it the U.S. Congressional Rebalancing Committee on e- was it the Economic and Security Commission? They put out their annual report just yesterday, 
And one of the things, one of the recommendations is that the U.S. prepare for a naval surge in the Pacific to counter China. Oh, good God! I it's mean, in, no, it's in I mean, there. Black. It's it's just it's but in they're there. always a useful sort of marker of what is the the extreme of centrist, you know, fear opinion on on China. Yeah. Extreme centrism. Yes, well, that's I mean, Jim. That's, yeah. Jim not, has been called this. <laughs> I like that. Extreme, I, I, I'm a radical centrist too, so I, I'm with you there. Let's let's move on and talk about. Are the we going to bring up the Democratic Leadership Council now? Yeah. yeah. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah, so there really, I mean, maybe you would disagree with me, but I think there are several issues in play with the Bloomberg Affair. And, you know, these are things that we've talked about on the show many times. One is about, of course, the treatment of foreign correspondents and the media outlets to which they belong here. Uh, another is the, the, the long arm of censorship, how it sort of reaches out beyond China's borders to, to, to you know, put its cold, icy hands around the throats of, of academics or um, uh, media organizations from outside of China with a sort of threat of cutting off access. Again, something we've discussed on the show. And then there's the, the not specifically China-related issue about Bloomberg's treatment of Mike Forsyth and um, the whole sort of professional ethics around around this. Um, am I missing? That's, that's That pretty uh, much covers uh, it. Uh, covers it pretty well. So, Gotti, perhaps you can first fill in listeners succinctly on what's alleged to have happened and what the latest is. Um, you mean in the Bloomberg in case? In the Bloomberg case, right, specifically. Um, and also, of course, there's... Maybe you can set up, I mean, if you think there are Paul other Mooney's examples case. we should bring in, right, exactly, like Paul Mooney or... Um, right, so two different cases, right. uh, quite different. Paul Mooney is more about how foreign correspondents are treated. Um, right. He's a reporter, long-time reporter, who has worked for Newsweek, South China Morning Post. Reuters was uh, sending him back to China um, as a special correspondent. And... Um, for the first time in 18 years, uh, he's been denied a visa uh, to work as a journalist in China. And Paul is distinguished by being probably, uh, I think, the most uh, aggressive reporter on human, human rights, rights issues. issues in China. And um, especially on minority amongst foreign, rights. Amongst, amongst the, um, as you put it, the Anglophone uh, foreign correspondents. And, uh, and I think he's, he's definitely paying a price for that. He was asked about his coverage in his visa interview in San Francisco. And um, was, he was actually asked about a comments to a Donway interview. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, he was uh, uh, asked to be more objective if he does get his visa. More objective is, of course, a, a phrase they use with all of us um, when we're getting our, our, you know, when we're being reviewed for visas. We hope you'll be more objective in your coverage in the future. In his case, this wasn't just a formality, uh, and he's ended up being denied a visa, which is a rarity. Um, but it also is a message, <coughs> I think, about. You know how how far you can go as a foreign correspondent. I mean, it's meant to be a message. How rare is? I mean, the, Chris Buckley was denied. Uh, well, no, the, the New York Times issue is definitely it's, different. It's different. Um, I'm talking about uh, being sort of punished for the kind of work you're doing individually. Uh, Chris is, is is an organization. Chris is an organizational issue. He is his employers the New York Times, and of course that's the same for Bloomberg's employees. Um, but for individual reporters, it's very rare. I mean, Melissa Chan. Uh, obviously, was essentially essentially too. expelled by being denied a renewal uh, for Al Jazeera, and there's Paul. And I'm trying to think um, in recent. I mean, Andy Higgins was not given a visa. That was no, that's a, a slightly issue. different case involving state secrets in the '90s. There's Phil Pan also. Well, Phil's an you know, organizational issue again. Right, again, it's right. New York Times. Um, so Let's that's, so that's a whole separate thing, and right, that right, that right. is a disturbing message uh, for individually for foreign correspondents. Um, and hopefully, I think most people will will. Uh, will continue to be quite as aggressive and honest in their coverage of human rights issues, which, uh, and I think that's going to be the case. Uh, on the Bloomberg and New York Times case, uh, or the Bloomberg case in particular, uh, of course, they had a report uh, that uh, has been reported, as you said, in the New York Times, that they uh, spiked. 
um, at least according to the New York Times report and the sources they spoke to, including, we believe, uh, based on his being um, released from Bloomberg or dismissed from Bloomberg, Mike Forsyth. Um, prize-winning reporter. A prize-winning reporter and a friend of several of us here. I think, yeah, th- at least three. Uh, Jim, I don't know I, if you I've know never Mike. met him, okay, but I've so yeah, friend, friend of three of us here. Right? Uh, so the report, uh, according to an FT uh, story, is about Wang Jianlin uh, of Wanda, um, a now now a more famous company internationally because it's getting into big AMC into the movie theaters, business. Right. Um, and it's uh, it's about him and his connections to um, to top Chinese leaders, um, his and the connections of his his wealth and and it's more about along the lines of what Bloomberg did last year uh, about the family of Xi Jinping and about the eight immortals, these the mm-hmm. families of the mm-hmm. eight immortals, these kind of founding um, kind of dignitaries of the Communist Party. So. So Founding revolutionaries. It strikes me the visa issue and the Bloomberg issue intersect, uh, but but they're actually quite different stories, in my view. In the Bloomberg, uh, there's a drama that goes far beyond China, I think. The visa issue, what astonishes me from an outside perspective, is it seems so foolish for the Chinese government. They're yeah, it's an own goal. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's exactly. Just... They're investing all this money in, in uh, CCV America and all this other soft power stuff. And and the way, in my view, they could best enhance their image is just let people in. You, know, you could see all the, the, the range of things here. And I think it would be, on balance, way better coverage than they're getting, getting this way. The Bloomberg case, to me, is an illustration that that since serious journalism has never really been profitable, it's always need some other needed some other host body. There always have been conflicts. I grew up in L.A. The L.A. Times always was having these conflicts of interest with you know real estate development, all the rest. The movie Chinatown is about that. Bloomberg is it has seemed until now to be a plus that the non-journalistic part was so huge and the journalistic part was so small. And so profitable. Yeah, and it's so huge and profitable because journalism could rise right along. Now that's a problem because they don't want to give up the revenues of the rest of the company for this little journalistic part. It's a good thing that the New York Times and The Economist and and The Atlantic are, they have only journalism as their business. So they can't just, you know, they don't face the same kind of trade-off. But was there ever a realistic threat that Bloomberg terminals would be terminated? Well, so just to, will you, to your introduction, so Bloomberg.com, the website, has been blocked. Right. But the Bloomberg terminals have not been disrupted, mm-hmm. which is far more important. The Bloomberg terminals are what matters. The website's nice, but it's it's actually kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Thanks it's to However, some institutions were code encouraged code not to well, renew No, their, but there, were, there was significant were, pressure to, to, not, for, renew it, to not renew or not right, buy yeah. new terminals. So Bloomberg's business on the terminal side, which is what powers the entire corporation – did suffer as a result of the stories last year. Right. No, nobody would deny, even the journalists wouldn't deny that their stories led to a decrease in decrease in business in China. So Mike has confirmed now that he's been his he's had his his contract terminated, right? Is he's that, no. All he said on Twitter was he's no longer what, no longer employed. No at longer Bloomberg. employed. No longer employed. Yeah. Bloomberg. Okay. Um, is, is Bloomberg? Let's 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 put this question. I don't really. This is my perspective necessarily, but I, I do want to ask this: Is Bloomberg really alone among media outlets in in, in undertaking the self-censoring. I mean, is the hue and cry against Bloomberg really warranted, or have there been other news organizations that have maybe made some compromises, whether for the sake of access or for commercial interests? I mean, I, I think it's been raised in a few places. Jim? Sure. I mean, life is complex. Journalists are always making little trade-offs at the margin. Every journalistic organization needs to stay in business the long run. So you think about how many advertisers you can piss off, You know, how many things you can do that the readers will, will view as, as boring. This seems to it seems to be based on what we've heard about it an unusually stark case, which would make sense in the proportion between the non journalistic business and the rest of the business. So, so it does. I can't think of any other just like what's alleged to have happened. Well, so one other thing, the other thing that they were doing, which which the Ed Wong's New York Times piece disclosed, 
was that actually Bloomberg had set up their own sort of version of the Great Firewall for their systems in China. And so they had this code 204 where they were pre-censoring stories that they worried might upset people in China so that if you had a terminal in China, you didn't necessarily see these stories, which to me, that's quite remarkable. And I don't think subscribers knew. And it's significant. That's precisely the thing that Google said it wouldn't do. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't take on the burden of censoring for internal. Right. You want to censor me? Go ahead and censor that's me, what, but I'm not going to do it for you. That's what Google said in, in 2010. Uh, that's not what they said in 2006. In 2006... Should uh, you make a disclaimer here, Kaiser? <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, no. I, mean, I, 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 I work for the company that killed Google the, in China. The next few minutes are brought right, to but, you by Baidu. Well, no, no. But what I, what I really <laughs> we need to say something very much in, in defense of what Google's original strategy was, which is coming into China in 2006 and, and uh, understanding that they would have to make compromises, yeah. but that seeing the greater good in this. Can, no, but uh, can Jim's be, point was actually that Google wouldn't do the work them. Themselves. themselves. Yeah. And then they you said know. they would obey the law of China as opposed to what Bloomberg is doing, which is sort of preemptively, is right. accused to have done. And, and yeah. there is, they took these keyword lists and then they automated essentially uh, the process based on, uh, they, they, they revert, right. reverse engineered the lists. Um, they mimicked, they basically yeah. mirrored the great firewalls. But, but I mean, there is, I think your, your point on principle is generally correct. Google, they, Google has never said they're a media company. They're a tech company. I think you have to make a very important distinction it's between not a, perfect a tech company and a journalistic organization. And that's, that's a very different way, I think, you approach information. Uh, to bring my, my co-host who's absent today in, uh, Michael Bloomberg has defended the company he founded and said that they're um, they were not wusses, but uh, Jeremy, in his, he was known for his measured and judicious use of language, uh, has been calling Winkler a wuss and a coward on Twitter and on China File. Is that fair? Well, no, I, I don't think we know whether Winkler is is really is the, the one line making this. I think he might have been a little bit he has a unfairly he has a reputation for being a tough, nose, tough journalist and uh, a hard nosed journalist. And I think it's quite possible that. The decisions are being made uh, a bit above his. Right, pay I think grade. That, that's the interesting reporting. Yeah. The next stage of the reporting to be done of where inside Bloomberg this happened and by whom, and, and I don't think any of us knows that. Well, that'll F- be really interesting. Felix Salmon, a blogger at Reuters, had a long piece yesterday where he right. talked about that the, the, the Winkler, right. you know, who, who really was and the, the founding editor of Bloomberg News, that Winkler actually had been losing power, and the decision was actually made by this, the, the second Secunda, founder, right. the, the other billionaire, the other Bloomberg billionaire. So we don't know if that's true, but I think you know some of the like the, the Taiwanese, the NMA. Animation where you know Bloomberg's driving the, or Winkler's driving the tank, and that I think might turn out to be a little unfair. It's certainly entertaining, but might it might be, be a little unfair. unfair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how hard would it really be to to, to to do a Google image search on Ed Wong and get somebody who looked more like Ed Wong? Or, That's true. The animation did they, not do him. You know, I used to have an They had models. It's just easier to put the head on the model and yeah. be done with it instead of like the redoing the art. Like, you know. Okay, guys. Um, so, any, any final thoughts on the, oh, actually one one quick thing that, that we we talked about this last night, Bill. Uh, it, it's a difference with with Bloomberg. I mean, you know, they are a a financial a financial service, right? Uh, the, their reporting moves markets. If they pull pieces, they they are not giving investors full. Well, I think there are two things. One, I think is is this is deeply unfair to the. There's some really terrific journalists at Bloomberg who yeah. cannot be happy right now. Oh yeah, because they're they're they're. Pro- the reputation of their product has now been tarred by this. Well, this, bring, this brings up a question. Uh, will Bloomberg end up publishing the story? That's an interesting question, I think. Um, they've, I just, they've just gutted the operations of, yeah. you know, like the I mean, the, the lead, the lead journalist, Mike Forsyth, no longer works there. So uh, and Amanda the, Bennett the, has resigned. They've they right. gutted exactly. the departments that would Amanda put Bennett's out this resignation? Kind of, you guys, do you see this as possibly coincidental? No, right? I mean, I, uh, no, it is definitely possibly coincidental. Okay, yeah. No, it's uh, well. I mean, I think it's I think it's related to the overall approach to the investigations department, correct, which was but, a bigger thing yes, happening. But that in the was China going was part on of before. It. I mean, yeah. that was kind of 
uh, that train was coming down the track. And right. he's saying on, on resigning that the story she was proudest of was, was last his, year's right. Exactly. Right. That was no yeah. coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. That was no, no but, but, but to your question, so, so here's the thing. So, so first of all, I think this is very difficult for the journalists there because, the, you know, you now wonder when they write a China story, are they holding something back? And that's right. not fair, but it's a natural reaction given what's happened. The other thing, though, to your point is Bloomberg has, has built its business on bringing, bringing transparency to financial markets. And things like this story, if what has been reported in the press about these relationships, that's important to people who may do business with this company, to policymakers who may have to approve deals by this company. And so here you have Bloomberg, who makes billions of dollars a year selling information about you know, that is a lifeblood of the financial markets, and now we can't be sure that we're getting all the information. Yeah, I mean, and that's very always, dangerous to their business y- yes. on the journalist side. I wouldn't have side. shorted this company if I had yeah. known they had such no, high political no, so, connections. <laughs> yeah. And also, it may be this is much more important as, as an event for Bloomberg than for China. Information about China is going to keep getting out. China is full of people mm-hmm. who are going to be uh, spreading this information. But Bloomberg, really, its entire journalistic credibility is at stake right now. Yeah, it's back so, to – it could very well go back to being a newswire, which is fine, but – that's not what they seem to have had aspirations for over the last decade or That's so. Right. I think, to be fair to them, they are paying this price because they've had the most aggressive journalism mm-hmm. on this front. Um, and, you know, to answer your original question, I think journalists in China have long known that it would be tougher to report on the private lives and their finances of, of, the, of the very top leaders. And Bloomberg and New York Times have taken on those stories, and they've paid a price for it. Mm. Um, I had one more question for Jim, actually, because um, oh, yeah. on the visas issue. You know, this it's been floated this notion of reci- you know reciprocity, right. and at the same time, I think it's well it's well and good to say to China, you should open your doors to all journalists. We just know that's not going to happen. Yep. Um, so, and I'm not saying I endorse re- reciprocity, but I hope it's you cer- don't. Exactly. No, I, I I haven't come to that conclusion. Exactly. But I'm just trying to figure out is there a is there a practical uh, way out of this mess. I, I guess um, you know the lesson of, of negotiating with the Chinese government seems to be that formal stands and threats of humiliation don't really pay off. But I would think the U.S. could say, "Look, this this matters to us." In the famed strategic and economic dialogues and all the rest, that that among the list of things that are big concerns to the U.S. is the fact that it's so hard for journalists to get in here. We're not going to kick out the CCTV people, but it but it matters. Right, and I guess it's what level is it brought up at? I just it, need ten minutes yeah. alone with Xi Jinping to convince him that you know he's shooting himself in the foot. Well, you know, but the thing is, again, this goes. <laughs> I don't to think the he thinks he's shooting himself in the foot, Kaiser. Different views of the world. I mean, this is a this is a government that operates with the Marxist-Leninist view of news, and right. new, reporters are frequently not called journalists; they're called news workers. Yeah, I, I don't believe that that they're in, like in, sex workers. Exactly. Right? No, but but it's this is a whole different also view of the utility of news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, that's uh, a very fruitful discussion. I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, at, we have a, a segment of our show remaining now where we talk, we give recommendations on some things, you know, articles that we've read, and um, maybe give you guys a little more time to come up with something. I guess I'm going to kick off today. Uh, I'm going to, uh, if you haven't already read it and you aren't already sick to death of discussions about the uh, third planet, I'm going to recommend Orville Shell's piece for China File called Xi Jinping Refills an Old Prescription. Which provides, I think, really good context. Um, it's it sort of uh, toward uh, kind of informed empathy that I, I, I'm always, you know, a, a, a booster of. Uh, it really kind of helps the reader to see the world through the eyes of of, of Xi and the Chinese leadership. Very good piece in that uh, classic kind of wise Orville Shellian style. Uh, so that's my recommendation for the week. I'm going to go to you now, Gotti. Well, I've been um, I've been reading quite a bit of Chinese history lately because it's that time of year when I'm writing a, a Christmas special for the Economist. 
or already written it, um, and it's a history history piece. So there's two history books I'd recommend. One is Scramble for China by mm-hmm. Robert Bickers, and the other has probably been recommended here before, but I'll mention it again, which is Odd Arndt Westat's uh, Restless Empire. Mm-hmm. Both really worthy reads if you want to kind of understand. So Scramble for China it looks at the scramble for concessions after after 1895, is that right? That's uh, not entirely all. That's okay. not all of it. It goes earlier than that as well. Okay. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it, anyways. Those two combined, Excellent. I think, are a good way to understand uh, China, especially in the nineteenth uh, and twentieth century, which is when you need to understand it. So I'm going to have a a periodical recommendation, not of course just the Economist, which everybody should already get, not just the Atlantic, which everybody should already get. But I am newly impressed by the New York Review of Books oh, as yeah. an excellent as as um, being having more range of stuff. I was reading two big issues on the plane over here a couple of days ago. There, uh, in uh, in John's has something about um, China. There's there's stuff about. Uh, I just think that that that. If you get the New York Review of books and read only that, you would be as well informed as you could be with any other publication except the Atlantic or the Economist. <laughs> it's an amazing. I mean, Ian's pieces are so yeah. good in that. I mean, that, that's his. That's that's where he shines. I yeah. think he's, he's, he's yeah. so terrific. I, he said it really quickly, but he did mention the Economist, which is uh, important yes. because. Uh, you know, Jim has Let's one of the most famous in, articles right? against the Economist. <laughs> but but I, I encompass all. I, yeah. <laughs> Multitudes. Bill, um, yeah. I um, actually have a book, and mm-hmm. it's it's in honor of Matt Winkler's um, apparent reference to uh, figuring out how to report from China like Americans reported from Nazi Germany pre-World War II. And it's a book that came out in 2011. It's called In the Garden of Beasts by uh-huh. Eric Larson, which is about um, – sort of the based on the diary of the U.S. ambassador's daughter in Berlin in the early 30s. And I read it when it first came out because it was recommended by, to me by someone in D.C. because apparently this book got made the rounds of sort of the D.C. China Watcher policy set because people were saying, oh, this is just like China. Oh, Jesus. Right? I read it. I actually – I was worried. Over. I read it. I didn't, I didn't see it. I, I said, very interesting book, but I really didn't see any of the kind of similarities. Right. But, you know, two years on, maybe people want to take a look at it. And, and – Given the what's been in the news reported that that was said in the Bloomberg conference call, some some listeners might find it interesting. It's it's a good book either way. Well, I'm, I'm almost done with Ian Kerwin's uh, massive one volume um, Hitler biography, and uh, of course I'm reading it for parallels, and there aren't parallels. I mean, I'm sorry, it will mean I agree. Germany. I don't I don't I see can, it either. But you know, we're also here, so maybe we're blind to right. something. You know, what's interesting. There are often a number of sort of ignorant academics. I'm thinking of Neil Ferguson at the moment, who equate <laughs> modern China to the Kaiser's Germany before right, World right, War right. One. It's interesting when I saw the Winkler Nazi reference. You it's never, extreme. You, you never hear that. I mean, that, that's sort of the first. I, actually, I, I do hear it. As I, I, really? I think I tweeted this, huh. I hear it from hardcore dissidents. <laughs> that's oh, what okay. I, right. Yeah. Well, well, no, and I heard it at a, and I heard it at a DC in 2011 right. that, mm-hmm. that this was very interesting. Okay, very guys. worrisome. Uh, Jim, it was so good that you could come join us finally. Thank and, you for and, letting um, me join the come, here. come back I mean, here next time. Next time you're in town, Gotti, great to have you back, man. And great to be back. Thanks for having me. Let's all have a moment of silence for sinicism. Okay, and we'll see you next week on the Cynical Podcast. Take care.